Welcome to Private Market Talks, a Proskauer podcast. I'm your host, Peter Antoshik. Warburg Pincus is a global private equity firm headquartered in New York. It has over $80 billion in assets under management and invests in a wide variety of industries. It has invested in over a thousand companies in 40 countries. Leela Ramnath is Senior Vice President and Head of Environmental, Social and Governance, ESG at Warburg, where she leads global ESG strategy for the firm. Prior to joining Warburg, Leela led innovation and sustainability at an impact-focused investment firm and worked in international development as a TechnoServe Fellow in East Africa and at Millennium Challenge Corporation. She is also a former term member at the Council of Foreign Relations and holds a bachelor's degree in economics from MIT and a master's in international relations from the School of Advanced International Studies at Johns Hopkins. One of the biggest challenges facing private equity investors is how to incorporate ESG factors into their investment decisions. In an earlier episode, we heard from Alex Friedman, CEO of Novata, about their drive to develop metrics for ESG benchmarking. Today, Leela will give us the view from the private equity investing side. Leela recently completed working with a private equity industry task force which looked at how the industry might start to think about using ESG metrics and developed a framework as to how private equity firms might incorporate ESG metrics into their investing strategies. You'll find a full transcript of this episode and links to other useful information at privatemarkettalks.com. And please, don't forget to subscribe and hit like after listening. And now, my conversation with Leva Ramnath. Welcome, Leader, to Private Market Talks. So you are the head of ESG at Warburg Pincus. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about the role, what you do, and a little bit about Warburg? As you mentioned, I'm the head of ESG, Environmental, Social, and Governance. And what that means is I lead our corporate sustainability efforts globally for the firm. Of course, where our business is investing, so I work very closely with our deal teams on integrating ESG factors into how we look at investing for all the sectors that we invest in, in all the regions that we look that we invest in. For perspective, you know, give a sense to our listeners, assets under management, the regions, the number of companies. Sure. Warburg Pegas has about, I think the latest is around eight, over 80 billion of assets under management. And that's globally. So we have mm. our headquarters in the US, but we have operations in UK, Europe, India, China, Southeast Asia, Brazil. Um, so we have a global pre- presence. And I think that's been a really interesting phenomenon, especially as we've seen ESG transpire over the last few years. As also part of my role, I, I work with portfolio companies very closely to help them design and develop their own sustainability strategies across a variety of issues. On the way here, I was just listening to some some work on responsible AI, which has become come up a lot recently. So mm. it's always an emerging area. There's a lot of interesting things that our portfolio companies, which range across a broad scope of different industries from healthcare to industrials to technology to a lot of energy transition investments. So that's a big part of my role. And then the third main part of my role is working with our fundraising team and our LPs, our limited partners that invest in our funds, as this has become a huge point of diligence and importance to all of their initiatives as they look to allocate across investment managers. So I work on our reporting and and liaising with our LPs on that, on our ESG strategy as well. And so in that role, how do you think about ESG from the perspective of a capital allocator, an investor? Sure. So I think this is a super important question because ESG has become 15 different things to 15 different people. From our lens at Warburg Pincus, and I think we're pretty much in line with a lot of folks across the 
private equity sponsors is that we don't see ESG as an asset class. We see it as a lens. Mm -hmm. So it's a lens on how we can look at a company's ability to be resilient and its ability to create value in the own ecosystem, the own regions and the industries that they operate in. So it's really a way to evaluate risks and opportunities, an extra lens, an extra set of data points, really, to help evaluate that. And I think this has become really critical, especially in the last decade or so, where issues like climate issues or any rising inequality, higher inflation, more use of technology. There are a lot of ancillary impacts to human rights, to climate, to the environment that companies are dealing with within their own stakeholders. So mm -hmm. the more we can refine the scope and kind of look at a lot of these issues head on as we're looking at investment going in, not only the current issues as they stand today, but how they might be in the future state that can really help our companies or our, our deal teams navigate what could be the potential risks to underwrite and you know opportunity set on the value creation side. It also helps our portfolio companies navigate within their own ecosystem. Yeah, so I want to get into that a little bit later. I know that uh, this has been a, a challenge across the industry. Uh, it, it, it's top of mind, as you said. Um, you must be talking a lot with your colleagues about how are they dealing with ESG and how are they factoring into investment decisions? Yeah, I think, you know, it's an interesting time because private markets, of course, uh, take up for a large part of the economy now, yeah. privately held companies. And I think it's often a bias in the market sometimes to kind of treat private equity or private markets as a monolith. And, uh -huh. you know, one size fits all of this is how private markets operate. And there's a lot of nuance within, but there are there is a common set of challenges that we're all facing today, um, but also a common set of opportunities. So. I would say, you know, I work a lot with my peers across the industry, other heads of ESG at other sponsors, um, and to really think through these issues and see how we, how can we work together and navigate and collaborate on a lot of uh, initiatives to be able to further our respective initiatives w within the, you know, what's appropriate for our own respective businesses. Um, so that's been, it's, it's been probably the most collaborative job I've ever, right. I've ever had right, across right. an industry, but there, it's not without its, you know, broader challenges, which, which we can talk about. So let, let's talk about some of the challenges. What are some of the challenges that you're faced with when you're trying to incorporate ESG into your investment thesis? Sure. So I say, I think that there are three key things that we're looking at today. So one is regulation. And I wouldn't say that as a challenge because of course we're going to um, mm -hmm. comply with any rules that we're regulated under. But I'd say as a global manager, we have, I read a stat the other day, 400 different ESG regulations <laughs> coming at you different ways by other wow. standards is a whole other number. We're at US headquarters, like like I said, but we have operations in Europe, in, in India, China, et cetera. So this is a time where ESG has been a huge focus mm -hmm. and a huge trend, but regulators, rightly so, are looking at this to say, let's be clear about what we're doing, let's be transparent. And there's been a huge greenwashing risk. So the greenwashing, right. the overstating of ESG credentials has been a real issue in the market. So I think that's the reason why regulators around the world are approaching this. The thing is, as a global manager, each jurisdiction is approaching it in a different way. Right. So if you have operations in the US, you know, you're looking at federal type regulation and then you have state level regulations and each is looking at it in a different way. In Europe, you have a different concept, which is called double materiality, where mm -hmm. it's as ESG professionals, we like the word materiality, where we're, we're we talk about, you know, what is most material to a certain industry around ESG is going to be different from another one. And that's typically from a risk right. profile. Now in Europe, they take a different view that when they say double materiality, that means they're looking not only at the impacts that climate and, and all the ESG issues 
have on a business mm -hmm. and the financials of the business, but it's also saying that companies have a responsibility to their broader society. And so that second lens is a very European perspective mm -hmm. at this point, and a lot of the regulation has been written around that. And that's where the most forward-looking regulation has been in the world. Meanwhile, in places like Asia, you know, things like climate has been a huge area of focus uh, among a number of countries in Asia. But things like diversity and inclusion have a different flavor for different reasons right. in, in certain countries. So it's, it's kind of a, a patchwork of regulations that a lot of global managers have to approach right, right. now. Right. I just want to hone in on that a little bit. What, what do you mean by materiality when you talk about ESG? ESG, yeah. Yeah. So materiality, when it comes to ESG, is is that concept of if you are working within a specific sector or industry, there are some, certain subset of issues that you should mm -hmm. prioritize because those are directly linked to how you might be able to access revenue. You know, ha it might have direct impacts to EBITDA, your balance sheet, et cetera. So it's 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 actually there are specific financial drivers that are linked to ESG factors for each industry. So. Uh, there's a group called SASB, the Sustainability Accounting Standards Board, that came up with this many years ago to say they basically surveyed industry leaders of different groups and they mapped 77 industries and said, if you're a healthcare company, mm -hmm. you know, you should really prioritize right. you know, privacy and things like data and quality of care and transparency and things like that. If you're a energy transition company, though they haven't they haven't done that that sector specific, mm -hmm. but if you're if you're a, a tech company, these are the seven other things you should look at. And so it's, it's that concept of focusing and prioritizing ESG factors that mm -hmm. are linked to specific financial drivers. And so that's that's been the core of ESG. And relative I think, to the industry that they're in. Relative to yeah, the industry yeah, yeah. that they're Got in. It. Exactly. And so SASB has been around for some time. Mm -hmm. It's been now rolled into what's called ISSB, the International Sustainability Standards Board, mm -hmm. which is under the IFRS Foundation. So they're actually putting out right now in consultation mode, but they're expected to put out a set of standards that is meant to be the global kind of standard around this idea of materiality. So mm -hmm. they've been very con consultative in this process, but it's something that the industry is waiting for right now to see kind of what those standards are. But I, I think that materiality piece of it is really important because mm -hmm. ESG can't be a one size fits all to all companies. Mm -hmm. And that's, I think, been a little bit of an unfortunate part of what, you know, there's been a lot of excitement around all putting, getting all the metrics right. on everything. Right. But what, if you go back to the beginnings of why, how ESG became very popular, you know, originally in 2006 was the first time ESG kind of came out with a UNPRI launch and the principles for responsible investment. And it there was a series of papers that showed, you know, if you look at material non-financial factors, like environmental and social and governance ish factors, you can actually drive value and, mm -hmm. and manage risk that way. So that's been where there's been a lot of the focus. And that's where the shift between ESG and what used to be called sustainable, socially responsible investing, where it was more of like a values-based right. investing right, right. approach. Um, there's been now a lot of conflation around the term because I see that as a very distinct. It somewhat creates a, some of the problems in ESG. I exactly, think. exactly. Yes. So it's it's a, it's a very, there are a lot of definition issues, but concepts of materiality is really important. Before I said materiality, there's this idea of double materiality. So that's like going beyond and saying what are the impacts of ESG factors on your company, right. and what are those impacts on your impacts of your company on the world and, and society. And that that double materiality is a, above and beyond. That's something that in Europe is mm -hmm. is the focus. But it's really important to kind of you know be very 
specific and we do this a lot when we talk to management teams around you know this is what is materially for your business and some sometimes companies are really excited about what their impacts of their products that they're selling into the market are on the world and you know we have a number of companies that are avoiding emissions through the use of their products and then connect that connect for me the that data and and you know the ceo's getting excited about their impact and performance ebitda mm -hmm. uh, specifically make the connection for me there yeah so i think the the way put it simply we we think about esg in terms of offense and defense so when you're looking at from a defense perspective i would say this is relevant for every company mm -hmm. how can you protect your social license to operate in your business how can you retain your customers how do you retain and continue to have access to capital T things like how are your you know treating the communities around your operations how you're treating workers what kind of product quality things that you're dealing with in your in your business what kind of transparency or media you know any media attention around negative reputational risks around mm -hmm. how you're mismanaging any of these things can um, you know a company at, at worst can really they can really hurt EBITDA or they could lose customers they can have more operational incidents in their factories they you know th th this could be a loss of reputational brand value things mm -hmm. like that from a access to capital a bit you know this is a market state right now it's table stakes for in the financial industry to have some sort of ESG analysis going in right so if you're about to invest in a company and the management team has no idea what you're talking about when you're asking them a number of questions and you know maybe they don't know it's called ESG because that's a very capital markets thing but right. you know if they have nothing around employee safety and they have nothing around their environmental footprint if they're a heavy industry company or whatnot then that's a you know that's information around the, the company's ability to service its customers and and be able to maintain that um it sounds it sounds to me and this may be may not be a fair characterization, but it sounds this sounds a first of all common sense. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> okay. B. It also sounds like something that companies should be doing in any event if yeah. they're not already doing. And what we're starting to do is, as an industry, is put a label around it and bring a rigor of of anal of an analytical framework to something that's been happening for yes. a while. Is that is that a fair? Yeah, I, th I think so. I think especially when we think about private equity and private yeah. markets, you know, we're, we're, you know, typically, you know, companies are hold, being held for, you know, what, five years, yeah, five, seven right. years. And in that time, if you have issues with these things, they're going to they're gonna come out, right. you know. And so I think you're, you're absolutely right. It's that, that longer view for long term um, investing, creating sustainable value in companies. I think what's different is that the that the, there's so much evolution of any one of these mm. issues under ESG that's moving fast, either driven by regulation or driven by market trends. Mm -hmm. So uh, for example, you know, generative AI right now in the last few months, questions around responsible AI and what's being, you know, ha asking those questions about what's, why, you know, do, you, do we even want to build this product? You know, what kind of bias might be inherent in this product? Mm. What, what kind of output could it be that could be you know, is this some output that might um, ha be problematic in terms of the the end user? You know, th there are a lot of kind of responsibility issues around mm -hmm. that topic in itself. And you take that, and then you and then you add on to climate, and you add on right. all the the fast um, you know the, the hot button issues right now. And each subset of those is evolving at such a rate that I think 
it's really important for investors now to understand those dynamics because you know many of these things are being regulated or there are certain market pressures around certain areas. Um, you know, so one of the things, for example, is if you're looking at a company and you're you're going to invest with a company where they have a lot of publicly held customers, and this and if a company and many of their publicly held customers have made climate commitments where mm -hmm. they have committed to net zero across their whole supply chain and you're a supplier and you right. ha can't answer the question in the RFPs about you know what's your scope emissions or what's your climate strategy this has come up a lot mm. in a lot of companies that are saying you know we're getting this in RFPs how can you help me you know think through this and and it, so it's even if it's you know in the private markets i think often private you know private equity and private markets it's like oh, okay there's no regulation or whatnot right. i i think it's all it's very de facto right now in terms of the pressures um around these issues which is great because you know that they're they're this is just a, a business case for why they should be thinking about climate because their biggest customer is asking right. them to set a climate commitment. Right. Um, so this is happening uh, all across our industry right now. So Leela, can you give me one or two real life examples where in your role at Warburg, where you've worked with CEOs or CFOs on these issues and kind of how it plays out? Sure. So I'd say we engage with companies in three key ways. One is education. So we, we had a webinar a couple of weeks ago where we brought bunch of our CEOs on the line to talk through, actually, sorry, it was CFOs, uh, talk through a lot of the ESG issues around what, what's required, required in their industries, around mm -hmm. reporting, the value of data, how to think about it from a value creation lens, the focus on carbon emissions and things like that. So we do education events like that. Second is we have a toolkit of resources. So every company is unique and has their right. own uh, challenges or, or initiatives that they're focused on. So we have a we, we get so many similar questions that we created a toolkit and we're able to partner with some of our portfolio com other portfolio companies in, in the Warburg family to kind of bring forth some of these tools. Mm -hmm. So one of the things we added this year was a greenhouse gas uh, emissions calculator tool that we partnered with one of our portfolio companies, TRC that does this all day. And, and and so we worked with them to help a lot of our companies calculate those carbon emissions. The third is where, where it's really fun is working one-on-one -on -one with companies. Yeah. And that's, you know, all across the board. So we, you know, in, in many cases, it's um, getting a lot of newer companies up to speed around what is ESG and what's material for their industry and, and helping them, you know, set up their first ESG policy or think about, um, what you know what what they should be measuring from the outside and, and, mm -hmm. and just what are the base level metrics that they should be thinking about on the other hand there are some companies that are pretty sophisticated about this and this is something in the value their value creation team or sorry value creation plan they really focus on sustainability so mm -hmm. we have a company that i've been working closely with in the packaging industry where they work a lot with pla you know plastic based packaging and we've been working with them closely to increase the resiliency of the company by um, in in increasing the number of SKUs that they have in recyclable plastics or more paper-based products. And, and that's, you know, again, we, we see that as a res business resiliency play, mm -hmm. um, but also they've been able to really thrive and add new customers and, and be able to align on climate commitments with, with their customers. So that's been exciting as well. And there are some opportunities we've, we've had around energy savings and cost savings through raw material savings that right. are linked to less waste to landfill mm -hmm. at the end of the day. So 
those are a few. Um, another thing that we're part of today is called Ownership Works, which has been super exciting. This is an organization that was the brainchild of actually Pete Savros from KKR. Uh -huh. And they've been a number of uh, private equity sponsors, ourselves included, that were founding members of this when it launched last year. And this, what, is, what is that? So this is an idea around broad-based employee ownership. So right. the concept of when we invest in a company, we, you know, usually private equity sponsors, they give upside to the management equity plan. Mm -hmm. This is the concept that 100% of workers, from the frontline workers working in the factory to mm -hmm. the C-suite, everyone gets a piece of ownership in the company. And that's throughout the life. They get to participate in liquidity events. At exit, they get to, they get payouts. And there have been a number of uh, successful exits in the industry that have been demonstrating the power of this. And mm. Um, it's great because they're meant to be meaningful payments to workers. They're meant to be coupled with financial education so that workers can really understand the value of the equity and under understand right. what it means to be an owner. And also it links to productivity benefits in the, in the companies so that empowering workers to really make them feel that they're part of a company and really owners of a company is a great way to, to inspire, um, you know, energy and, and productivity. Around. Is this something that you have I say you, I mean Warburg has been incorporating in their portfolio companies. We're we're working with a number of companies on this, and um, and it's something across all of the private equity sponsors. Mm -hmm. There's been a huge effort around collaborating and understanding what works and what are the drawbacks. And, right. and I sit on the board alongside our head of co-head of U.S. private equity, Jim Neary, as well. So we're we're very active in the organization. Yeah. It's a nonprofit organization designed to really further this movement across the industry. And there's some great initiatives. The Ownership Works just came out with our impact report. Uh -huh. um, so I encourage listeners to, to look at that. To date, I'm just looking at the numbers. So far, there have been 66 companies with board approved shared ownership plans across the initiative in, in just one year, which wow. is fantastic and about 95,000 workers have been impacted so far by wow. shared ownership that's program. very so, impressive yeah yeah it's a, it's, it's an exciting initiative yeah. a lot more to do but i think it's that's one thing that's very tangible it's real money in the hands of a lot of the people who are working really hard to uh to make this companies. is you know as i as i sit here and listen to you i have to i can't help but be first impressed by the role and, and what you do but also a bit envious because <laughs> it, it sounds like such a first, you know, it's really interesting, but also incredibly positive mm -hmm. role within the, you know, the private markets, uh, generally speaking. I, I just think it's really exciting. It is. It, you know, it's 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 nice to unearth a lot of yeah. really interesting things at our portfolio companies. It's always fun. We, You know, I, I hate to use the word educate with our companies because often they're educating right. us on what works and what, what kind of things that they're doing and yeah. it, it's it's yeah there, there's no shortage of topics yeah, yeah. That, that fall under this this esg umbrella but well listening uh, to you i can tell you you love your job yes so that's absolutely that's pretty cool so let's go back to some of the challenges facing esg you mentioned already the issue of greenwashing um you know the issues of defining what exactly constitutes esg applying the materiality and double materiality standards and what those mean, um, what other challenges would you highlight? I'd say there are probably two more things that I'll just hit on that are, I think are challenges right now okay, because great. I think they fall into some of the work that we've been doing collaborating with mm -hmm. our peers. The second is around, because of all the regulation, there's been a huge focus on reporting. And 
you know, I think, you know, the, the rigor around reporting metrics um, and the compliance around those things is really important. Mm -hmm. I think we're at a tipping point, though, because a lot of the practitioners around ESG and the reason why there's been such a huge focus on ESG in the market is that there's been a link to value creation and opportunities around investing and getting a better lens on not only the risk, but the opportunity set of companies. So I think right now we're at a point where there's a lot of focus on regulation and there's there is a, initiatives around the value creation bit, but it's it's kind of this is a challenge where there's you could easily spend your entire day writing reports, right. but it's, it's not really meaningful if you're not using the data that's in those reports to drive meaningful change. So that's the second thing. And then the third is data and, and the availability of data. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we, we talked about the regulation and we talked about the reporting and the creating value, but putting this into perspective is really important and the context around data is really important. So I think it's, there's been a huge focus on collection of data, calibrating that data, benchmarking data, which is fantastic. And I think, you know, in many years, that's going to be a really valuable data set. Mm -hmm. What I think is still needs to be part of that conversation is the context around these things. So, you know, if you have a data set um, of, for companies that say company is performing very well on environmental factors like car scope one and two carbon emissions or the renewable energy percentage is X or Y. Under putting that as the context of where they are in the world right. and where the energy what the energy grid looks like um, in that in that part of the world and what what are the trade offs around energy security with the mix of the energy grid in that part of the world, I think are, are, are really important pieces of, of the picture here. So I that think- It sounds like a complex analysis to put together, uh, complex data to assemble. And you've just identified one small data point that, yeah. of, among a broad range of ESG issues that would have to be considered. Exactly. And, yeah. and I think that's, you know, one of the criticisms around ESG is that it's kind of a catch-all for yes. a lot of categories. But yeah. I think, you know, what it, what it does do it is br brings more rigor and measurement around what's material for a business. And if we can keep the conversation around how it can link to value creation and r risk management, that's where I think, you know, the real value of collecting this data really lies. So with all that, I think that that's um, that's a point where a number of peers and I kind of got together and, and our respective firms to think through some of those issues. Right. And it's it's a common challenge that a lot of us are focused on. So I had a, I had a conversation uh, with Alex Friedman from Novata and for our listeners, it was one of our prior episodes in which he talked about the, the importance of data and, and, and the development. And of course their company is developing benchmarks, data for benchmarking ESG. But even he cited the fact that we're in early stages, we're in the early stages of the data development, recognizing the challenges that you've just described. I think to put it into context, we have about 250 portfolio companies right now. Other managers have more than that or yeah. less than that. And so, you know, when you think about a private equity sponsor, there are varying levels of influence that you may have over a management team. There are varying levels of maturity of core operations, even things like mm. HR and the mm. finance function and the legal function and things like that. And if you overlay ESG metrics onto that right. without that materiality lens of this is how this is going to help you drive value in your business, it's difficult. And, yeah. and that's where I, I think there's been great efforts around collecting data mm -hmm. and, and initiatives like Nevada and many others that are pulling together that data. I think it's going to be really critical for the, the industry overall in, in several years once the quality of that data gets refined and you know, the benchmarking is, you know, relevant to the context of each of the companies. A lot of these companies, it's um, it's, it's it's a new language for yeah. a lot of companies. And 
I say for most of companies in our portfolio, we most of my conversations are with the CFOs of the companies or the CEOs. There's right. no chief sustainability officer at most of the companies that we work with right. or a team that's skilled in understanding these issues because they've never had to really do that. Yeah. And we always try to build the business case for the company of to say, is this something that you want to invest in to build that data set um, here? And we could bring them the tools to be able to help them do that. But we really, you know, our philosophy is to invest in management teams that we believe in and understand and bring them resources to help them grow and thrive in their specific industries and, and businesses. Right. So weaving into that, how ESG can help them thrive is, is the context that I think is really helpful. It must be an eye-opening conversation with them. As you said, it's a little new and not, I shouldn't say it's new, everyone's talking about ESG. Yeah. But what I mean by new is really bringing some structure and framework around the conversation when you're saying these and, and practicality. I think when I work with companies, it's really nice to put into context around what, what they do every day. And yeah. often there's an aha moment of, you know, wow, the, this is called the ESG. Actually, we, we already do all these things. They never <laughs> called it that. For example, if you're a healthcare company, you know, the most material issues for a healthcare company would be more about things like quality of care, patient privacy, data privacy in general, um, transparency of billing, things like that. Whereas with an industrialist company, it's more, you know, what are your environmental liabilities? What kind of chemicals are right. you using? Hazardous waste? Um, rec how recyclable are your materials? And also workforce issues around, um, you know, DE&I, but also our, our, our labor, um, how's that treatment of labor and how is that being empowered, people being empowered and things like that. So it's very different. And often the com companies are very focused on these things because it's good business to do so. Right. What I think the ESG lens brings is kind of a, a view on the evolving nature of a lot of these issues, which is moving at such a rapid point at mm -hmm. this point. And given the focus from media and other stakeholders looking at these issues, employees are often really empowered around, um, you know, DE&I efforts at their companies mm -hmm. or climate efforts. So it's, it's putting more of a, a specific focus on what are, what are the business case for a specific company to get them excited about it. But once they understand what the e, what ESG is and what the metrics are trying to do, that's where you can really, you can see a lot of energy and excitement from Got companies it. that are really Interesting. want to do that and see it beyond just a reporting exercise. Which I'm really curious about this this task force that you mentioned mm -hmm. where, the, where you brought some of your industry colleagues together. Can you, can you describe it and, and kind of what its purpose and mission was? Sure. So there's a group called the Sustainable Markets Initiative. Mm -hmm. And this was a group of a number of task force that were put together at the CEO level across a, a number of industries. This was originally organized by his Royal Highness, the uh, King King Charles of England. And he had put this together when he was formerly Prince Charles. He had put toge together this organization and a number of CEOs ca came together within their respective industries. Mm. Now in the private equity industry, the, the, a similar CEO led group came together. So our CEO Chip K alongside a number of uh, CEOs in our industry came together and just started kind of meeting on a quarterly basis to discuss what are you know, what are some issues that we're mm -hmm. all facing as an industry and and to try to understand how we can work together to support each other's efforts and and um, and get a common understanding of you know or a perspective on these issues mm -hmm. and then be able to apply it within whatever works for each respective organization if it makes sense. Right. So three categories were identified. One was climate, second was biodiversity, and the third was ESG metrics and 
I thought it was interesting that metrics would come up to the, the to the C-suite topic, right. but I think it's probably because most of us have been getting so many questionnaires from our limited partners around what, what kind of metrics are you collecting on your portfolio companies. It's been a huge point of focus. Well, it's interesting. And it's somewhat compelled by your LPs. A lot of it, part, I think. In part. Yeah, in part. in part. I think I think that there's been a, like I said before, there's been a lot of focus on reporting. And mm. so a big driver has been through regulators and mandating if any any funds that are being marketed into Europe right now have to basically date what kind of, what type of fund you are in terms of ESG mm-hmm. um, under the uh, Sustainable Finance Disclosure Regulations, SFDR. And you also have to, in some cases, some sub- subset of funds have to actually disclose principal adverse impacts, PAIs, mm-hmm. of their underlying portfolio companies. And so many sponsors have had to do that sort of reporting. At the same time, our limited partners, many of our limited partners collectively have been asking a lot of those things for regulatory purposes like mm-hmm. that, or because they're very focused on just seeing how the efforts, da- more data-driven evidence of how sponsors are managing um, the ESG profile mm-hmm. of companies. So it's been a huge request, I would say, you know, across our number of funds, each, each firm has probably gotten hundreds of questionnaires every year around right. ESG, and the types of questions have gotten more specific and more focused on data. So it's a common topic, and I would say, you know, it's it's been it's always been great to see the energy from the LP side around ESG, and I think that's been a great driver of a lot of initiatives and and a lot of the progress across the industry. But at the same time, you know, there was an understanding among the group as, you know, we that's just one use case of how we think about data, and so we came together and we were happy to sponsor a, a, a sub working group of our peers mm-hmm. to kind of think through these issues a little bit more tactically and say. You know, how do we use data? And so we identified four use cases for data for the PE sponsor side. One, or one is around that LPGP reporting mm-hmm. use case. The second is that regulatory reporting that I just mentioned. So two of them are very reporting oriented. The other two are around how to use ESG metrics and how we look at investment monitoring and management and, mm-hmm. and even on the due diligence side. And the second is around how we can help our portfolio companies be able to thrive in the ways that I was talking about before and identify what the metrics are relevant to their own business to help them be successful mm-hmm. um, well above and beyond our investment peer risk perspective investment periods. So those are the four use cases. Two of them are reporting oriented. And there's been a lot of work being done. I think Novada, you mentioned, is very focused on that right. reporting right. That, uh, use case. There's the ESG Data Convergence Initiative, another great initiative that's focused on that reporting kind of consolidating and for convergence around what's being reported. Mm-hmm. So those those are well covered. Um, of course, regulators are well covered on the regulation right. front. What has been less focused on is, I think, I personally think is going back to first principles of why are we collecting this data to begin with, is to be able to make better investment decisions, hopefully, or be a more informed investment decisions and help our management companies thrive. So that's what we focus the efforts of this paper and, and we ended up producing a paper, and um, we can share the link to the to the paper. We will, for our listeners' benefit, we will uh, provide a link to that paper in our show notes. But can you describe, you know, what you looked at and some of the conclusions you came to, or the analytical? I would think it was more not conclusions, more of an analytical framework. Yes. That you were providing or suggesting might might work. Can you, yeah, can you, absolutely. Can you walk us through that? Well, it's funny because we went a lot back and forth because last thing we wanted to do is create a new framework. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> there are far too many 
frameworks out there. Okay. So we had we were trying to debate what to call it, but yeah, basically yeah. it's a you know a perspective on how okay. you know private market. Not a framework. Yeah. A perspective. <laughs> exactly. <Okay>. <laughs> because <laughs> there's so much great work that's been done around the industry to right. build frameworks for different use cases, and what we wanted to do is kind of bring it all together mm -hmm. and demystify some of these things and put into context for private markets because I think. You know, private markets, private private equity sponsors have a great opportunity to influence um, and and work with companies on the most material issues that are to their businesses around ESG, and in a very tangible way. Um, I just mentioned earlier, you know, I can call up the CFO or CEO of any of our companies and talk to them directly. It's a very different relationship from a more hands arms length type of engagement that you might get in public markets, for sure. Example. So I I get that the paper is not a framework. <laughs> <laughs> but it does provide some analytical basis for approaching these issues. And maybe you could talk a little bit about the approach that it is proposing. Yeah, sure. Thanks. So so we propose a three-step approach and we worked, this subgroup worked really closely with KPMG to kind of formulate and, and collate our thoughts here. The first step in, in looking at what a privately held portfolio company or a private equity investor or an LP, how, how they should look at data. The first step is the private equity materiality. And the way we think about private equity materiality is what kind of investor are you? Are you, you know, a five to seven year, um, you know, are you investing in this company for five to seven years? Are you investing only in minority stakes, majority stakes? Mm -hmm. um, are you investing in certain parts of the world that have ESG as top of mind, like in Europe, or are you in other parts of the world that mm -hmm. may have less of an emphasis on that? Um, or have more of an emphasis on certain factors? Are there certain regulatory things that you should be thinking at? So more of the context around the investment. Mm -hmm. And I think that's really important because typically, you know, th there's a, often a view that private equity owners hold 100% of all your companies, right. which is not, not the case. That we're not holding companies, that, that's a different model. So um, there, that context is, is really important because the amount of influence that you would have if you're a owner, if you have a, if you're a buyout investor versus a minority investor, non-control investor is gonna be pretty different. So, mm -hmm. or if you're investing in a company in a certain, in Europe, you know, there's certain like must haves versus others. So that's, that's the first lens is the materiality around the investment. The second is the materiality around the industry, and that's the concept of what we talked about with SASB and the and what's what's in focus and what's most material, not only from a prioritization perspective of what subtopics really should be focused on, mm -hmm. but also at what level of depth you should go into those topics. So, for example, if you're a consumer goods company, circular economy and you know the use that the life cycle of your product is going to be really important. Um, and so getting really granular about that data point is mm -hmm. going to be very much in your interest to do that because and your stakeholders are going to ask you for that and you're going to be able to need to footprint that. So that's one example. But what we did is we mapped um, a number of our frameworks, a number of various, various sponsors frameworks and the questions that we get incoming to see what are the category, main categories that are in focus across all the different frameworks and what's the level of detail and granularity that you know the group suggested kind of going deeper on if you're in certain industries. So that's the second, the mm -hmm. industry materiality. The third is really putting into context around the maturity of the company and the aspirations for the company. So if you have a startup and you know they have you know very minimal management team and they don't really have the bandwidth to ask them to report on 200 metrics right. um, isn't really feasible or real realistic or really helpful to the company at that point. 
on the other hand, if you have a company that really aspires to be a public company and they're looking to go IPO and you know the, the bar is much higher for public companies, that, that's a different conversation. And the, the maturity level of the granularity of that data for the material industries, but also the maturity level in terms of how advanced their metrics um, capabilities are is gonna be a much higher bar. So that's the third bit is the mature, maturity profile of the company and what their aspirations are. So between those first, you know, private equity materiality, industry materiality, and the maturity, we think that this gives a nice lens and perspective um, for not only LPs that are looking at GPs and how they're managing data, um, for GPs that are starting out and trying to prioritize, or this is the most helpful for us for portfolio companies to right. talk to them right. and say, this is how we think, you know, this is a nice framework for you to kind of think through or framing of how you can think through these issues. And here are the frameworks that back these up and you can right. use and leverage them and not re recreate the wheel. And that's usually very appreciated because it's it's really, you know, with a blank sheet of paper, it's, it's really hard to get these done. I think you also talk about the use cases for them, right? The, you know, the, yes. you know, who is this, who are you using this information for and, and why? Exactly, and, and we hope this will be a, a, just an added helpful tool for all in the industry to be able to use and leverage in their own, whether, you know, no matter who you are in the industry, I think it's a, we, we hope it's something that's helpful to be able to contextualize this. And for the listener's benefit, um, if, you, if you go to the website and pull up the paper, you'll also see a number of case studies where the application of this, can't call it framework, <laughs> <laughs> methodology is applied. Uh, so it, it gives a number of examples. If I exactly. Know. So what do you see as the future of, of ESG over the next three, five, seven years? Pick a, pick a time frame. A few things. One is ESG is not going away. It may not be called ESG mm -hmm. um, because of a lot of the naming issues that I mentioned earlier. But I think this type of analysis is, is here to stay. Mm -hmm. And you know, a lot of it is really baked in because of the regulation and, and a lot right. of it is baked in because so many companies and organizations and, and investors have made commitments around this. So mm -hmm. certainly here to stay. But I think, you know, the, the way that technology is growing right now is going to be a huge factor in this mm -hmm. and in terms of not only what we're collecting and like how we're collecting it. So, you know, there's been a lot of great initiatives around, um, you know, take, take the example of carbon emissions. That's always been a calculation that people use using do using something called the greenhouse gas protocol, and it's a it's a, it's a calculation though it's self-reported. Yeah. There are a number of technologies now that are becoming more sensor-based technology. So, using a lot of different data sets, structured and unstructured, to get actually you know real-time data, but also point-of-source data mm. to be able to get a better picture. So it's going beyond the self-reported nature of data, but getting more real-time data right, and, right. and that and more accuracy data, I think will be really will be something to look for. But also how that data is being synthesized and used and you know going back to generative AI, I'm sure there's going to be a lot of applications there. I also I, there are a few kind of emerging issues that are coming out. One is biodiversity. This is something in Europe that's been in more focus for the last several years, but that's another area that's coming in and how to protect nature and their, and and the impacts of um, certain industries mm -hmm. on protecting biodiversity of our planet. And so th that's been a huge focus, and I think it's going to in certain parts of the world, I think it's going to go global as well. Right, so. right, right, right. So what what development would 
surprise you over the next five years. You know, look at, you know, project yourself five years from now, look back and say, well, geez, I didn't expect that to occur in, <laughs> you know, in this area. What, 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 what would that be? I would be surprised if it, went, if it totally went away, if people yeah. just went back to business as usual. I feel like there's so many, like climate is continuing to be an issue. I, yeah. I think right now there's a really important conversation going on between around energy security and um, and the, the pace of the transition. Mm. And last year was the first year that the amount of money Bloomberg NEF did a study and it was, I think it was like $1.1 trillion were invested in fossil fuels and in renewable and clean energy. So it was the first time it was like at parity. Oh, wow, yeah. um, and so I think you're just going to see more of that. So I'd be surprised if there was, if for some reason there was a slowdown in the energy transition investing. Um, but I, if because there's just so many tailwinds behind that, I think mm -hmm. I think that would be a shock to Just thought of this question with <laughs> as part of the emerging trend, does the deglobalization, um, the geopolitical risks that we're experiencing right now, does that fall within the ESG umbrella? Is that something that you look at within your call it your mandate? I, I would say it, it certainly impacts. Yeah. It has influences on. Uh, we have somebody at our firm who does that all day. Yeah. But it's there. There are a lot of adjacencies. You know that that whole idea, right? Of energy yeah. energy security versus you know climate change and, and you know, some of the policy decisions that are being made. There's a lot of intersectionality between those issues. So it does it does come up. Um, you know, in high inflationary environments or wage pressures, you know, that does can have impact on right. human rights and workers in, in certain ways as well. So we try to think through how a lot of ish these issues intersect in different ways. This has been a, a really fun conversation. I appreciate this. I thank you. I just I just have one more one more question. What book or podcast will you be reading or listening to as a guilty pleasure this summer? So I've been recently listening to a uh, to a podcast called Possible mm. by Reid Hoffman that Reid Hoffman has, and it's super interesting. It's looking at the future of certain industries, but also has a lens of how, what ChatGPT thinks the future of that industry is, oh, and then they have like an, an expert <laughs> from that industry. So I was just listening to one that they had um, Trevor Noah on there, and they oh, were yeah. talking about the future of entertainment and what AI could do there, and then. And then they have, you know, the AI interpretation of certain things. So it's, it's kind of a fun one where it's very real and, you know, it helps you learn right. about this. This has been fantastic. Thank, Thank you, you for joining us on Private Market Talks. I very much appreciate the conversation. Thanks a lot, Peter. It's been fun. Great.